From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG, and I'm Eric Clayton. Today's guest is Angela Barnes, the Vice President of the Aquakeek Foundation. In her work, Angela helps preserve and protect Piscataway Park, located in Southern Maryland on the Potomac River. This is part of the traditional homelands of the Piscataway people, of which Angela is a member. As you'll hear in this episode, I met Angela at Loyola University, Maryland. She was on a panel discussing what justice looks like for indigenous people and what injustices have been perpetrated throughout our history. And while the conversation certainly focused on the need for justice, one theme kept resurfacing. Too often, discussions around issues of indigenous communities are limited to the mere reality that indigenous people are not relics of the past, but in fact members of our present community. With joys and challenges and hardships and triumphs, just like everybody else. Yet, many of us are still surprised to learn that there are indigenous folks next to us in line at the supermarket or in the next booth over at the diner. And so, what you'll hear today is a delicate dance, a paradox almost. Angela and I discuss how indigenous people are more than just stories, more than just a window into the past. And yet, at the same time, without understanding and asking after those stories, without looking through that window, we cannot grasp the unique experiences, and as such, the unique injustices and struggles of indigenous communities in the present. We cannot reduce people to a single story, and yet we still must page through those many chapters. This is an important conversation, and I hope you'll find it as insightful as I did. If you want to learn more about Angela and her work at the Akakik Foundation, check out the links in the show notes below. And now, here's Angela Barnes. Angela Barnes, welcome to AMDG. We're so glad to have you with us today. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you know, so you and I, we uh, we met after a panel discussion that you were part of at Loyola University, Maryland. Um, and this panel was on, right, justice uh, and, and indigenous communities. And, and the place was just packed with all of these undergraduate students and, and folks that were um, folks like me who were just kind of part of the, the larger community. So I wonder if, if we could start our, our conversation kind of reflecting back on that night. Um, you know, like what what inspires you to come to a place like that? Um, and share yourself, share your stories. What are you hoping that that people walk away with? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, I thought about this, and to be honest, I, I was asked by a friend <laughs> uh, to participate in it. And so I've I've spent a lot of time building relationships in my work um, with folks like Dr. Julie King, and had the pleasure of meeting some of the organizers um, at of the event. And so when they reached out to me and asked me, I said, "Sure, I'll do anything for a friend," really without any idea of what to expect. When I got there and saw all the students and their faces. Um, I was I was really inspired myself. Um, my hope one day um, is that you know we can go beyond the basic historical facts and experiences of, of Native people, um, and to really begin to have a deeper dialogue about the impacts of that history on Indigenous populations today. But I, I guess um, what I'm saying is that it's not enough to simply know that we are still here. 
um, which is most often what happens at these types of events. It's it's for most people, it's their first experience, their first even aha moment of, oh, I had no idea that, that there are Native people even around. Um, so if we can get past that initial, you know, hi, how are you? I'm a Native person, um, and then get get a little deeper into that conversation. And I think it just really starts with educating our, our young people, um, which is really a core indigenous value of sharing and storytelling and passing on that tradition to the next generation. So I'm, I'm, I'm always happy to share um, the history and the experiences with our young people, because I feel like that's how we're going to be able to grow. I wonder what is that um, kind of, as you imagine, you know, the, the, the hope, the hope, for future, right? What does it look like when we get past this idea that, um, you know, people just need to be reminded that Native people are still here, you know, part of our communities? What, what is that next step that you're hoping that, again, that room full of, you know, 100 or so undergraduates will do as they graduate and, and you know, enter the working world and, and really begin to make this this important difference? What do you think that will, will look like? I'm not sure. <laughs> um, I, I think there... I, you know, in most of our communities, the population of Native people is so small that, uh, you know, we're pretty much unnoticeable. So I think that's why it comes to a surprise to most people. Um, but there are other areas, especially here in this area where we are in the outside of the Washington, D.C. area. But there are other areas where you have um, stronger communities of Indigenous people still within the reservations. And so there's communities around there that are, are more aware than they are here in the Washington, D.C. area and some other parts of the, the continent. Um, but I, I think it really kind of goes beyond, I guess, that, again, that like surprise factor, um, you know, where we can go beyond like, you know, oh, you're still here and tell me all about your ways um, and appreciating and understanding that, you know, we're a part of the American population. Right, right. It's not necessarily just a history lesson, right? It's it's a it's a current, you know, uh, it's a lesson in current politics and current justice issues. Um, right. I want to hear. So so you're the uh, the vice president and chief operating officer at the Akukik Foundation. So let's talk a little bit about the work of of, of the foundation. Um, and your work, uh, you know, personally, what 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 does your day to day look like? What are the kinds of issues that you're wrestling with? Um, again, in the present moment. <laughs> well, my day to day, I do all the uh, administrative and, and wonderful financial management. So that's very boring. But you know, the the foundation um, has been a steward and a caretaker of the land for sixty five years. Um, we, uh, the foundation, was uh, established uh, initially when a congresswoman from Ohio bought the farm to stop development, um, which would have had an adverse effect on um, George Washington's home across the Potomac, um, Mount Vernon. Uh, as a result, there was an enabling park legislation that later was enacted to protect the natural and cultural resources um, along that shoreline. And so our intent here at the foundation is that all visitors, students, teachers, volunteers, um, you know, all sorts of people who come to visit will experience that interconnectedness of all life um, while they're learning about the park, about the culture, about the, the natural um, resources and, and heritage of the area. Um, so day to day, every week we serve we're open every day of the year uh, from sunup to sundown. Um, we serve visitors that are coming from all over the globe um, as a national park. Most people come because, you know, they, they like to visit national parks and learn about the local region. Um, and we, we directly serve students um, from the local school districts. Um, and we're actively working with our tribal communities to 
uh, to enhance the curriculum in our education system. Again, thinking about the systemically where we are able to ensure that teachers and students are learning about culture and history and heritage in our present classrooms and also being able to get out for field experiences and, and see um, the beautiful surroundings that we are in, in the park and see that through the lens of the indigenous people as well. So um, give listeners a sense. So Piscataway Park is, uh, we're, we're talking about, again, you said the greater kind of Washington, D.C. metro area. Um, we're in Maryland in particular. Who are the different tribal communities um, and, and other partners that you're, that you're working with in particular when you, when you say you're kind of bringing in these different community leaders? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the park, we are located in on the Maryland shoreline, just 20 miles south of Washington, D.C., and we are in the ancestral um, territory of the Piscataway people. The state of Maryland has two recognized state tribes of Piscataway people, the Piscataway Indian Nation and the Piscataway Kanoi tribe. Um, so we work directly with tribal leadership, historians and members um, to help share the stories um, of the Piscataway people past and present. Um, and then, you know, as we as we continue down this road of building these relationships, it's the other associated communities um, on the other side of the shore in the Virginia. You have other tribal communities um, that are living in and around the Washington, D.C. area. So Rappahannock, um, you have the Nanticoke that are on the Delaware shore, um, but also kind of just looking at the Chesapeake region um, and all those associated tribal communities um, that have historically call these places home. I remember, um, again, at that at that panel at Loyola a, a number of weeks ago, um, there was some conversation around uh, the importance and difficulty in getting that um, kind of official, quote unquote, recognition from the government, right, for different tribal communities. Can you share some reflections on, on again, what, what the benefits are, uh, but also some of the, what the challenges are to that, just for folks to have that kind of full picture? Yeah. Uh... So our our elders uh, worked tirelessly for thirty years, I think at least, to gain state recognition. It was it was a challenge. Um, I think historically speaking, the the governments, the colonial governments, and the American governments purposely, uh, for lack of a better word, we call it uh, genocide by paper, <laughs> um, removed um, identity and. Uh, and it was not something that was classified um, historically. So in order to obtain state recognition, there had to have been documentation that proved your ancestral lineage back to the formation of the state, which required um, actually the help of our Catholic churches and ministries because they held a lot of the, the birth and death and marriage certificates. Um, Piscataway people are, are primarily uh, Catholic parishioners. So um, it was through the, the church records that our elders were able to track that back to the formation of Maryland, which was 1634. Um, I'll, I'll just add the caveat that that's ridiculous, <laughs> that you have to, as, as a human, as a, a citizen of the United States or whatever country you are residing in this continent, to have to prove who you are through that kind of documentation in order to be recognized as the people, right. um, it's pretty hard to, to kind of comprehend. Um, I'm grateful that I was a young child during this process and <laughs> was not personally a, a part of it, but I, I did hear conversations sitting around the dining room table and 
And, you know, it's interesting because you're diving into historical record and you're learning more about you and your own um, history and your um, family and where you come from, et cetera. So, I mean, I think on one hand, it's it's restorative. And on the other hand, it's frustrating. Yeah, I, I mean, I can only imagine, you know, and you do see that kind of um, the, the rich history as you're as you're exploring it. But but to have to kind of prove that you're you're a human and you're sitting right there, you need these these, you know, these these pieces of paper to to make that case um, it is is very um, frustrating at, at best. Yeah. Um, can, can you talk a little bit? So, so you you were part of the Piscataway tribe. Um, and I wonder if, um, if you can share with listeners, you know, how, how does that, how does your identity, your heritage there come into dialogue with the work you do, um, at the Aquakeek Foundation, uh, today? Um, that's a really good question. Um, I, I'd say it's, it's helped me to grow both personally and professionally. Um, you know, most, most people today place native histories and stories as if it's a relic of the past. Um, but that's that's obviously not the case. Um, so much of our history is so recent and has affected people and families that are still present and alive with us today. So being able to see the historical and present day issues through my own understanding and knowledge has helped shape um, the vision for the work that we do at the foundation for the future, um, both within the ancestral and sacred lands of Piscataway Park, but also with those associated communities, um, many of which are my family and friends throughout the region. Um, so it's it's helping to uh, rebuild relationships um, among families and among communities, um, and to, to hopefully restore some some hope and resiliency for the future. What um kind of in your own reflection, your own, um, you know, research, and then your own lived experience. Um, what would you, what would you share with listeners about what, what does it, what does it mean to be a Piscataway today? What, 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 what would you, how would you describe your, your people, um, and the area, the land in which, uh, which you live? To, to answer that question, um, you know, again, I can only speak from my perspective and personal experience. I, I'm not a tribal representative. Um, so I just want to make that very clear. Um, but you know, from my personal experience, you know, the only other Piscataway people I knew growing up were my family, mostly. Um, we kept a fairly small community circle. Um, you would you would meet other, you know, Native people at powwows and other gatherings. But, you know, I would say it's pretty much the same today. Um, you know, we are people who, who have survived against all odds through assimilation and self-isolation. Um, but we're also very proud of our culture and heritage and that identity. Um, you know, we're we're people like everyone else. Um, you know, we have day jobs, we have families, we have soccer matches and, and, you know, cheerleading comps and things of that nature to have to, to do. So we're not, we're not just carrying this, you know, face forward of, you know, I'm up a scot away. We, we are, you know, men, women, children, and families, um, just like everybody else, but our, our history, you know, again, um, you know, as I referenced, it, it's usually thought of such ancient history, um, and it does go back much further than what most people learn about in school. Most people learn about Native culture and Native histories in the context of colonial America um, and the United States history, um, but you're not really able to see the prior history. Um, but plenty of our colonial records do state that you know, our ancestors left, and that's still the common belief, again, kind of attributing to that, that, oh, you're still here factor that most people have. Um, but, you know, while there was displacement and removal and migration of our people um, historically, you know, there are those who returned and, and or remained. Um, and, you know, the truth is, is that history wasn't too kind to our people. 
Um, but I think there is a sense of hope of reconciliation in the future. Um, the American Indian Movement, which about 50 years ago, again, not too, too ancient history, that was, you know, a lifetime ago, um, you know, that really started that, that sense of pride of being able to publicly say, I am a, a Native person and, and, you know, back in the 70s, we referred to ourselves as Indian people, you know, so to be able to proudly identify yourself as an Indian person, as an Indigenous person, that was big because there was a time when identifying as such could mean that you could die because um, there were laws that prohibited that identification. Um, so it, it's it's complicated, I guess, to say the least. Um, but it's it's something that I would say, you know, at least within my family, it, we're very proud of our culture and very proud of sharing that um, culture with others and still do to this day, um, wherever we can. Um, but for the most part, we're, we're normal people going, getting up Monday through Friday and going to work. Yeah. Thank you for answering that. I know it's, it's such a weird question. I, I feel silly having even asked it because it, it is this tension that it, you, you described so beautifully between, you know, uh, we're like everybody else, like we're, you know, we're going to the grocery store, we're, we're going to soccer matches. Um, and at the same time, there's such that importance of of naming the the history, naming the identity, and and carrying the stories, and I I just wonder, you know, I, I, it must be again such a an ongoing challenge to live in that that tension, that kind of that that space of having to both um, constantly be saying, hey, we're still here, here's here's the identity, here are the stories, like we're we're right here in front of you, and also being like, hey, I don't want to constantly have to be. You know, sharing my my life story just to prove that I am, um, you know, a person here. Like we're again, we're 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 an aisle six of the grocery store with everybody else. How do you, how do you, just wrestle with that constant tension? I I can only imagine that it's it's like a constant thing in your life. Yeah, it is definitely. Um, you know, sometimes I forget that. I may be seen as different uh, until I look in the mirror sometimes. Um, you know, I've, you know, I've been dining out with my family where I've had the waitress ask me who I am or what I am. You know, I've had that question asked of me too many times for me to even count on my hands. What are you? Um, it's just a weird question. I can't, I, I don't know how many people get asked that question. So I guess sometimes it's jarring to me because it's that realization that I guess I look different. Um, so depending on my mood, I probably answer I'm a girl or <laughs> you know, whatever. Play the guessing game because that's always fun. Um, but again, this just goes back to that lack of understanding of, of most people, especially here in this area. And, you know, I, I have to say in the Washington, D.C. area, especially Eastern Coast, Eastern Tribes. Um, in probably even some on the Western um, coast, like California and everything like that, I think has these same experiences. Um, again, because of the, the, the U.S. history of removing um, Native populations from their homelands to the, the Western area, um, to reservations and things of that nature. So again, it's out of sight, out of mind. Mm. Um, so when you are, you know, looked at as not quite this or not quite that, what are you? Um, you're, you're constantly having to be on guard, I guess. Um, and sometimes I'm caught off guard because, again, I'm just going about my, my business and having dinner. Right. Um, and then I get asked this question and 
you know, depending on if I feel like engaging in that conversation, I, I may answer. And then that usually propels a whole bunch of additional questions. I, I've, I'm not even going to list all the weird questions I've, I've been asked by everyone from childcare providers of my children to waitresses and restaurants to, you know, customers when I, where I work, it, you know, um, I used to always get asked, like, where are you from? And I would say, I'm from here. No, no, no. But where are you really from? I'm like, I am from here. Right. But before here, I was literally born here. I don't know how many times I have to say this. Right. <laughs> um, so you think that that perception that you're foreign in your own home is really odd for me. Um, but again, I just sometimes just forget about it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I can only, I can only imagine it's uh, that, that tension to, to, live in every in every moment and, and to be surprised and you know again you're just trying to get dinner at a restaurant um <laughs> yeah. i i want to I go back again to that panel at loyola and it's something we've already touched on a little bit um again it kind of plays off this idea of kind of living in these tensions um you know you you'd mentioned the past relationship between the catholic church and the piscataway people um, and then in Maryland, you know, for listeners, right, the Jesuits uh, were often the face of, of the Catholic Church and, and its policies of, of colonialism. You know, but now you have these Jesuit institutions like Loyola University uh, in Maryland um, and, and the Jesuit Conference who are working to promote reconciliation and, and to dive back in and, and, and kind of re, uh, you know, reexamine the history. So how do you hold uh, you personally? How do you hold these these things, these two, these tensions in mind? How do you how do you suggest that our listeners approach uh, these tensions of, of again, uh, you know, a past that that looked a lot different than hopefully the present does and much different than hopefully the future will? Well, it starts with conversations like these. Um, I, I would suggest to the listeners um, in their work uh, to approach these tensions with compassion, grace, and understanding. Um, Native people have, have both lost and fought hard to retain their culture and spiritual beliefs over the centuries. Um, there's, a, there's a real trauma, um, whether it's generational or direct, that has been associated with Catholic Church's roles within our communities. Um, and so I would say before reconciliation can really begin, um, the truth about those experiences and the impacts on um, indigenous populations and families is needed. And that, that truth comes from building relationships and trust. Um, and to be able to get there, you have to have patience mm. and then action because uh, we have to go beyond words. Um, but, uh, you know, I know there's been some great efforts of, you know, public apologies and um, acknowledging the truths around some of the um, genocidal impacts, if I will, um, of, of native peoples across the continent. We refer to it as Turtle Island, um, Canada, all the way down to the tip of South America. Mm. Um, but, you know, I, I think having these types of conversations and openness and willingness to listen with open hearts and open minds and, and just having that compassion, I, I think is a really good start. Um, I've unfortunately have been in circles and conversations where people ask, well, how do I, you know, help this? And I may make a suggestion and then I realize the person really doesn't care. <laughs> so being, being genuine, um, you know, in your efforts and, and, and it's not just for show, I guess is a way to say it. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Compassion, patience, listening, um, and then action, as you said. And I, again, I wonder if for listeners, for folks that may not be, you know, 
uh, you know, as, as deep into these issues um, as maybe they would like to be. What um, are some of those kind of pressing justice issues uh, that, that are most on, on uh, your mind or the minds of your family and friends and community that, that people could, uh, if they want to do a little additional research on their own, um, they, they, where, where should they start? Every, every indigenous community, you know, speaking from a continental perspective, every indigenous community has probably different needs in different ways. I, I can speak to us here in the, you know, Washington, D.C. area. Um, so much of it is uh, related to that loss of land and access to our um, spiritual centers, if you will. Um, so that's a big challenge. Um, I mean, there are I can, I, can, I can speak of the park in which we steward, you know, it's the ancestral capital of the Piscataway chiefdom um, back prior to, you know, colonization and during colonization. And, you know, those lands were, quote unquote, reserved by the colonial government. Then, uh, you know, Lord Calvert was granted the lands uh, back during the, the, the English colonization period. Um, but the, the land is a sacred place. It was a burial place of our ancestors. Um, and as other people started to occupy and have ownership of that land, um, unfortunately, some of those graves across the region have been um, uh, desecrated. And you know, so one of the big demands is returning of our ancestral remains and returning them to where they are supposed to be. I can't imagine anybody, any other population, any other group of people not being able to go to where their ancestors are buried and in prayer and in, in community with one another. Um, but because of this different perspective of what is a spiritual sacred place, is it a building versus a place that does not have a building, um, which is what is the reality for all of our indigenous populations is, you know, we didn't have church steeples and, you know, our, our spiritual centers was the environment in which we were around. Um, and so those are very sacred and, and have a great deal of importance to our, our communities and our ability to maintain our culture and our spiritual relationships with each other and, and, and with our God, which is the same. We are all under the same, same, uh, you know, belief. We just probably use different words to characterize it. So I would say that is that is a big, big, big issue across all indigenous populations. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to end here with this this idea of the land and, and respecting land. And because, um, you know, for, for many folks, like, it, like you said, it is a different uh, it's different uh, uh, spirituality. Um, and so I wonder if, if you might give our listeners um, what's a few reflections on how we might all better cultivate this this uh, disposition of, of respect for the land and respect for the people who live on that land and who have lived on the land? How how might we be all be a bit more mindful, just in our day to day? Um, uh, that that again, uh, you know, in Ignatian language, right? God is in all things, but but this this idea that that every this is a sacred space and 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 we need to we need to treat it as such. What how would you offer uh, some some advice? Well, this is kind of interesting. You mentioned that that tension, that duality. Um, and in my walk of life, I, I definitely have a duality of my perspective. Raised Christian and a Catholic, you know, household and family. Um, but also I've always had this notion of like, there's something more, there's something I need to understand more. And once I started to kind of 
look at my own um, spiritual beliefs um, through my indigenous lens. Um, and I'll just share this as a, a story. Uh, uh, my, my children, when they were younger and I were um, walking through the forest, like the trails, as I always do whenever we just need to get out and play. And I was sitting on a downed tree log and um, the kids were playing and the, the, the sunlight was dappling through the leaves and kind of sparkling down on the ground. And I was in a reflective mode. I can't say exactly what I was thinking or what was on my mind, but I had this moment where I went, here it is. Here's the answer I've been looking all over. And so when you think about the land, you think about the earth, the water, the air, the trees, the plants, the animals, they're a gift from God. And it's our responsibility as, as people, all of us, to care for that because that is how you care for gifts that are given to you from your from your father. Yeah, I love that. I love that. That's, um, yeah, I... Uh... I think that's, I mean, I think, I hope, I hope everyone can have, can like think about moments in their days where like, you know, they have that aha, that kind of moment of, of, oh, this is it. This is it. I'm, I see it. I'm in it. And, and, and then kind of how, as you, as you've said, right, how does that experience of the sacred, um, you know, that, that might hit you suddenly in a surprising place or, or in a, a, an ordinary place, how does that motivate you then to act uh, in new ways? Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Angela, any, uh, anything else you'd like to leave our listeners with? Where can they learn more about the Akokeek Foundation? <laughs> yeah, I, I, was, uh, I would say you can, you can learn more about visiting us online at akokeek.org. That's, you know, A-C-C-O-K-E-E-K dot O-R-G. Um, we're, we're continually to work and update our online resources to make sure that um, more of this information is accessible to more people, rather you physically um, visit or you're visiting online. Um, you can make a donation to support our work. Um, you can make a donation online to support the work of, of what we're doing to preserve and protect these cultural spaces in the park. Um, and then also, you know, look at your own local indigenous communities, tribal governments, First Nations, people owned communities and, and businesses and get involved. Um, that, that's all I can say. Awesome. Thanks, Angela. Thanks so much for joining us on AMDG. We hope you come back sometime. Will do. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. and occasionally in my basement. This episode was edited by me, Eric Clayton. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Mike Jordan Lasky, Marcus Bleach, Megan Leapsch, Beggy Sindelar, and me, Eric Clayton. Connect with the Jesuits at Jesuits.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Get weekly email reflections by visiting Jesuits.org weekly. If you or someone you know would like to learn more about becoming a Jesuit or Jesuit life in general, connect with your local vocations promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org and subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And as St. Ignatius may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.